Good morning, everybody. I'm Kimball Dunn from Knight Frank, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Michelle Teleski, who heads up our uh, residential research team. And uh, we're going to discuss a pretty interesting topic, and it's about private wealth, Australia, and the impacts around the globe. And for me, one of the very interesting things about um, Australians that we probably don't know, and it's expressed by Credit Suisse in their wealth report each year, is that the average Australian adult is the second wealthiest in the world. In fact, measured by American dollars, uh, the Australians have approximately $411,000 each, only beaten by the Swiss with about 538,000 US. And uh, of course, the Americans who have come up from 380,000 to about 403. So, so we're pretty wealthy. And the reason that I can see that we are so wealthy is broadly our love for homes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, so, property. Yeah, so real estate. And secondly, in finance, because we're forced to put our money into superannuation mm. and now 9.5% of our salaries is going into that. So the combination of the two is making us um, incredibly wealthy. Of course, the newspapers keep telling us that we don't feel very happy and we don't feel very wealthy, but that's <laughs> the truth of it. So. Let's get started. Uh, what I want to ask you, Michelle, straight off the bat is we've got this term ultra high net wealth individuals. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Look, the way that it's probably best defined is to um, take an individual if they've got net assets worth more than 30 million US outside their family home, they would be considered an ultra high net worth individual, otherwise known as ultra wealthy. Right. Okay. And is there such a thing as wealthy? So, so instead of ultra, there's just wealthy? Yeah, I would probably say it would then be classified as a, a you're a millionaire if you've got that same analogy that outside your family home, you had one million US um, yeah. In, in assets. Yeah, and I guess that 30 million US converts roughly into about 50 million Aussie. Yeah. So you've got a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. And look, there's, uh, we've um, calculated about 3,600, 3,060 ultra wealthy people in Australia right. and that's basically about 2% of the ultra wealthy population around the world. Yeah. So it's interesting that they, you know, we are quite wealthy on one hand but on the other hand at the top end we are only represented in that top 2%. Gotcha. Okay, so you're doing lots of research and you're going around the country and you're seeing our global research as well. What trends are you seeing with these people? Yeah, look, from a, uh, you know, they're definitely in growth mode in Australia. Um, over the last uh, five years, we've seen this population grow by 12% in the last year alone. So in 2018, grew by 4%. Right. Um, Sydney probably takes up one third of the Australian ultra wealthy population. Um, and I guess from a uh, projection, like going forward, uh, we've got uh, projections of about 20% growth over the next five years. Right. Um, so if we were to look in that five-year period, so let's say in 2023, uh, Sydney will probably at that time have exceeded a thousand ultra-wealthy uh, people. Wow, it's amazing growth, isn't it? And population-wise, um, is there a projection that you've got for growth over the next five years? And if so, how do you see Sydney and Melbourne in that in that mix? Yeah, well, definitely Sydney and Melbourne take the lion's share of uh, the ultra wealthy population in Australia. Uh, but I guess when you look globally, we're now at sort of 200,000 
um, ultra wealthy people, right. um, and that's dominated by North America. Right. Um, the I guess when you're looking at um, the projection of, of global, it's, it's probably more around the 22% over the next five years. So we're just slightly behind that. Uh, but if you have a look at the number of uh, um, the ultra population that have grown over the last five years, it's equivalent to about 43,000. So that's right. 43,000 more people uh, with wealth of more than 30 million, and that's equivalent to the, about the same amount of runners that were in the London Marathon. Is that right? So that's quite a, a large amount that there's global wealth going around the world. Yeah. I know this is taking us a little bit off track, but in the Credit Suisse report I was reading um, that you and I were talking about, there's something like 42 million millionaires yes. around the globe. So it's a, it's a lot of people with a considerable amount of money. Oh, Again, absolutely. obviously everyone's feeling pretty poor though, based on what we're reading in the I newspapers. Know. The headlines do want us to click on those <laughs> those articles, and I mean we, we should be feeling very very secure here in we Australia. Should. We're certainly one of the top destinations for, for you know global investment. Okay, um, Michelle, can you tell us where these people live? Yeah, look, we've got a, a map here, and it, it's probably um, best split into the two. So we've got the top three countries for the the number of ultra wealthy in 2018, and that was certainly dominated, as I mentioned, by North America, or the US, um, the UK, and also Japan. Yep. They're, the, they're the top three. Um, but I guess looking as a, a projection over the next five years, um, those countries that we see the, the highest growth in ultra wealthy, uh, eight out of the ten are actually located in, in Asia. Right. So you know your Vietnam's, the Philippines, um, certainly China. Um, and then the other two were um, in Poland and Romania. Right. Okay. The fastest growing in the growth of the ultra wealthy population. We we publish a wealth report, you know, each year, which we which is the one of the pillars of our publications. And it's always intrigued me as to where people make their money and then where they move their money. Mm -hmm. And uh, for instance, I, I recall probably going back five years ago, those people that were in South America. Uh, that were leaving South America to go to, say, Miami, uh, would buy a residential property and then they would bring their family and then they would put them into schools and they would start buying investments in that particular area and they would start to invest heavily. Um, so just on that trend, how are you seeing the movement of this money globally? Yeah, look, I guess there's, there's two camps essentially from a a government um, point of view for each of the countries. It's, they're either trying to attract that wealth into their country. So you've got places like Italy that are offering a, a thousand, a hundred thousand pound incentive for ultra wealthy people to, to you know, to move to Italy. Mm. You've also got other places like Moldova, um, Montenegro that are really encouraging that wealth into their country. But then on the flip side, you've got governments like the Australian government, you know, New Zealand, Singapore, the UK, Canada, that are really making the ultra wealthy population jump through hoops before they invest uh, in our country. Um, so it's it's something that you know the ultra wealthy are in a position where they are wanting to diversify their portfolio. So we're yep. certainly on the map, um, but it's about being able to move their 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 um, their wealth around the globe. Right, and I guess too we've seen um, countries like uh, the UK where you've got Brexit going on, so a little bit of uncertainty there, the anti-money laundering activity that's been going on that requires people to notify others mm -hmm. about large deposits and the like. So we're starting to see some of that illegal money finding it harder mm -hmm. 
to make its way into countries so they're not quite as popular. Yeah, look, in, in, within our wealth report, we have an attitude survey. And in, within that survey, uh, we questioned uh, more than, uh, I think it's about 600 uh, wealth advisors and asked, you know, of their ultra wealthy clients, um, what did, you know, what their intentions were for the coming year. And in terms of emigration, that was a record of 26% that had the intention to emigrate to another country over the next couple of years. Mm. And then when we further asked the question where they were looking to migrate to, it's the US, it's the UK, it's Canada, and Australia was actually fourth on that list. So we're certainly front of mind when we're talking about that population moving around. And, you know, as we were saying a little bit earlier, you know, we are living in a, a country where, you know, we've got clean air, we have great daylight hours, um, yeah. we've got great national parks and <clears> beaches, <throat> and this is super attractive to, um, I guess, not only, um, you know, everyone <laughs> around the world, um, but in terms of that opportunity. Yeah. So I think growing up as, as an Australian, I find most young people, the very first thing they want to do when they can afford to travel is go as far away as they possibly can <laughs> and or we all can afford to go. Yeah. And then to figure out where is Australia in relation to the rest of the world. And, you know, when I was growing up, it used to be Europe that you would go to first. I'm sure Asia is more popular because it's a bit cheaper. Mm. But what I realised very quickly was how far away we are from everywhere else. And now when I travel to the States, which I now do each year, uh, most of the recipients of my company uh, tend to say, gee, you've travelled 18 hours to get here. We want to do business. Anyone that's prepared to do 18 hours of travel, um, you've got our attention. So um, let's come back to looking at us because we are a long way away from the rest of the world. Mm. With these ultra high net wealth um, individuals, are they likely to come here to Australia and make Australia their home? Can yeah. we see lots of them coming? Mm -hmm. Look, we're in a situation like not only in Australia, but around the world that we do have an aging population. So lifestyle is certainly important um, in those later years, but then also, you know, the whole family situation. It's interesting when you do start to break down where people are making their wealth. You know, some of it is inherited. Um, some of it is from, you know, working institution and corporations, but a lot of there's a lot of entrepreneurs now that are making money doing the most amazing things that you just wouldn't expect. Right. for them to be making so much money. Um, and I guess when you, you look at that longer term play, um, you know, we are quite some distance away from other countries, but there's also the, um, you know, in five years or so, well, you know, the way that we travel is going to be quite quite different. True. You know, we're already talking about long haul yep. flights from yep. from London to Perth. That's It's not too long before we'll probably see those flights from London into Sydney. Yep. Um, so we, we, I guess in a, in a way we'll become closer <laughs> to these countries. We, we are still far away as a geography. Yeah. Um, but in terms of you know, being close to the action, we're not too far away. When I talk to some of the investors that we deal with that are coming out of Asia, they're still very critical about our tax rate for companies at 30%. And they, they often refer to Singapore and Hong Kong at 15% and say mm. how much uh, better the opportunity is for their earning capacity. Um, Having said that, they also like the safety and security and sophistication of our market here, mm -hmm. the lifestyle, all of those sort of things. But I think in terms of business, they see the opportunities are still better for them yeah. in and around Asia. Yeah, look, that's that's certainly true. But you know, look, I guess looking in Australia, Sydney is the financial hub of the country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess you're looking at other things like, um, you know, that uh, I guess when you look at the um, the ease of doing business here, it's 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 easier, yeah. it's transparent. Yeah. I, I, 
I say very, um, you know, openly that we've got a um, quite a stable <laughs> political environment, despite having such changeover of yeah. prime ministers of late. You know, when we when you look around the world, we are relatively stable, so yeah. it gives comfort. And you know, when you look at um, the amount of investment that we're coming in, whether it is the commercial market, but certainly on the the residential side as well, um, you know, we're seen as safe and in a very unstable. Um, world that yeah. we're living in right yeah. now yeah you know investing in some bricks and mortar uh, in, a, in a safe country yeah. goes a long way okay so let's reverse this we've got the Australians that are doing well and we've got the ultra high net wealth there are they going to leave Australia what's the trend well interestingly in our survey as I as I mentioned in our wealth report when we asked Australians living here what's their intention for moving offshore only five percent had that in mind that they would be emigrating um, to another country. When we asked what those countries would be, it would be the, the UK, the US and Singapore, right. which I guess are the usual suspects when we talk to you know colleagues and so forth, um, if they are intending to move on. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that that's not, um, you know, I guess the, 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 the trend that we're seeing coming in, when we look at those people that are moving into the country in that ultra wealthy space, interestingly, it's, um, uh, Malaysia, probably not too much of a surprise, um, but South Africans are very keen yep. to come here, yep. um, as well as the Singaporeans. So um, that's, you know, I guess uh, over the next couple of years, that's some of their intentions to, to move here. Yeah, okay. So let's take these people, um, they've made a lot of money and uh, they're looking to preserve that, no doubt. What are the big issues that they're grappling with? Mm. Um, do you see things like the family, the succession planning or estate building, uh, are they some of the bigger issues that they're facing at the moment? Yeah, look, and as I, as I mentioned, you know, we're certainly, you know, living and working in a, in a global environment now. So, you know, when we do sort of ask the question as to what's on their mind, you know, terrorism is one that's still still is at the top of the list. Um, Cybercrime is another one. Obviously, with the very high levels of privacy for ultra-wealthy people, you know, cybercrime is one that is on their mind. Um, but, you know, from a um, family succession, that's one that, you know, is constantly spoken about. And I guess that's um, having that, that generation, um, you know, to pass on their wealth. I guess people see it, you know, two ways, whether it's, you know, that it's going to be passed on, you know, via a family office type situation um, or, you know, they're going to have to <laughs> make it themselves. But either way, that is something that is on their minds. Yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously we had the GFC. We're now a decade from the, the GFC. Um, and when we asked if they're, you know, better prepared, they, <clears throat> they actually said that 82% felt that they were more prepared if a GFC was to be, Right. you know, imminent um, over the, you know, coming two, two years, that yeah. they feel they're in a pretty good position to, to right. tackle that. Okay, so they've, they've got a defensive strategy towards their wealth. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's interesting, uh, we talk about succession planning, but I remember Bill Gates came out here about four years ago, and obviously an incredibly wealthy man, um, and he was asked the question, what would he leave his children? And he said he decided that he would leave each of his children 10 million US dollars. And of course, the Australian, mainly Australian audience, said that's still a lot of money. And he said, I think his response was something along, well, it's all relative. It's been a long, long time since I stacked the dishwasher. So, um, so you can kind of imagine if he's only going to limit his his inheritance to the $10 million, 
um, that the rest of the money is obviously going to go into things like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, mm. so charities and things like that, which yeah. will be very, very big. And obviously that, you know, philanthropy is a huge, a huge part yeah. um, that, you know, plays a, a, a role in, you know, passing on to others that are, uh, are in need. Okay. Michelle, can you take us through some of the things that these people invest in? Yeah, look, you know, obviously we're, we're in a property environment, so we'll maybe um, touch on that in a minute. But, um, you know, it's about investments of passion and objects of desire. And um, each year we put together a, a luxury investment index. Right. Um, and some of those things on that index are, you know, your art, your wine, your cars. You know, they always perform quite well each year. But this year for the first time we actually um, included rare whiskey. Right. And rare whiskey actually performed um, over the last year, uh, grew by 40%. Um, so, and it was followed by coins. So, I've got my coin collection at home. So, I'm feeling I've quite. Got one too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking I need to get some of those values. We need advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, art, wine, watches all did quite well. Um, but I guess we, we do this index each year and over the last uh, 12 months it grew by 9%. So collectively um, this group of investments grew by 9%. That's excluding the, the residential. Right. So the coloured diamonds, which I thought was a good winner <laughs> last year, didn't perform so well um, in the last 12 months. But that's not to say, you know, over the next 12 months, I know that coloured diamonds are becoming quite rare we may actually see that increase. So really people buying things that they can now afford but might have looked at a long time ago and said, gee, I really want that, but I, I can't. Yeah. I can't get it. And I guess it's also the process of, of upgrading as well. <laughs> they might have, you know, a couple of cars that they, you know, really enjoy, but they might want the latest model. Um, but, you know, what some quite interesting synergy that happened with the rare whiskey was that there was increased flights between Beijing and Edinburgh, <laughs> which is a bit of a correlation there. Um, but then also, you know, there was a 40% increase in purchases by um, Chinese and Indian right. in the rare rare whiskey space. So, I, and I think it was last year that the a bottle went for 1.5 million. Wow. wow. <laughs> so yeah, look, I'm not a whiskey drinker myself, but maybe I, I might need one after this. <laughs> Shouldn't Beijing to Hobart, because Sullivan's Cove, I believe, is the number one whiskey at the moment. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe more reasons for people to buy in uh, into Australia and Hobart real estate to to go yeah, up. It's certainly again. an opportunity, isn't it, for Australia? We've got such great great produce here. Yeah. So you know, but they're not just investing in property, but they're yeah. certainly um, you know, expanding their portfolios. Understandably, and being collectors at the same time. So we've got Sydney uh, Prime Residential up there. Um, can you help define what that actually means? Yeah, look, the way that we define prime property is the top 5% of the the residential market um, ranked by value. So the top 5% at the, at the top. So what we've actually found over the last 12 months is that the prime property um, market has continued to perform um, in, in a positive space. Um, it's certainly come back from the double-digit growth, which was, you know, it was not sustainable that we saw in recent years. But it hasn't gone into that negative, negative territory that we've seen in the mainstream market. Yeah. Um, and some reasons around that are that, you know, um, the mainstream market, have, you know, was it needed to be cooled. That correction needed to happen. Um, and I guess uh, by tightening the strings via the APRA, the lending environment, not so much of an impact at the, the top end. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we still saw... 2.4% uh, growth in the Sydney prime market over the last 12 months, while, you know, in the mainstream market, which is 
both houses and apartments combined, that was closer to uh, about just over 6% uh, negative uh, growth in right. terms of that correction. So it's actually quite similar around um, the country uh, where we've got that two-speed market happening uh, with the exception of Gold Coast, which we also monitor. Gotcha. And can we just talk a little bit about um, what kind of amenity someone would expect for some of these very expensive apartments? Yeah, look, I, I, I tend to think of it um, as, you know, we're all travelling globally these days and I guess there's more of an influence on what's happening um, when we when we do travel and that level of service that we expect. Um, so I guess our that's almost now um, an expectation in our homes. That's, a, I think, a good way to look at it. Um, but from an ultra-wealthy um, uh, perspective, uh, what's quite important is that level of security. Um, also very, um, uh, I guess, goes hand-in-hand hand somewhat with technology. So we've got a project down in Melbourne called The Muse, and you know some of the, um, the the concepts that they're trialing there are quite amazing. That you know you drive up to the driveway, there's number plate recognition. When you drive in, your car your um, car space or your garage opens. You drive in, and by the time you're out, the lift's waiting for you, and it's going right. to take you up directly to your floor. So, you know that kind of level of service is 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 just the norm now. And we've got to understand too that even though um, you know local uh, ultra wealthy people are staying in Australia, they still do have homes around the world. So whatever they're able to get there is um, something that they obviously expect here. Yeah. And I guess, you know, tying in with that hotel experience, um, having that, um, I guess, that branded residence, um, which we haven't really seen too much of here in Australia, but certainly um, very strong in other parts around the world. Um, you know, we've got a project um, that we're selling at, at the Crown Residences at Wambarangaroo. And you know that's the whole concept of um, having that hotel experience, where you know you can pick up the phone and have room service as you would in a hotel. It's also that concept of lock up and leave, that you know you can be travelling, come back and there will be fresh flowers and your groceries in the the, um, the kitchen waiting for you. So it's that level of of service offering mm. that that's expected, mm. um, and we're certainly starting to see that in projects uh, in Australia. Um, you know, in that super prime space, which we would consider the top 1% of the market. The Australian dream has always been about owning a block of land. It was always the quarter acre and having a home on it. Um, I, I think that's starting to look like a bit of a burden. You know, when I look at uh, the mortgage, the house price, uh, the fact that you've got to look after the lawn and the pool and bits and pieces, I wonder when you get to a point where you've got a lot of money and you, you are, as you say, free and you are moving around the world, whether you look at your large home, which would be bigger than a quarter of an acre with mm, some of these people, absolutely. and your tennis court and bits and pieces that you don't use that frequently, whether you start to look at it as a burden um, and that you start to look at more convenient and better located uh, properties with more amenity, as you're saying. Yeah. Uh, there's something, to me, highly attractive about if you are able to fly around the world to come back to your home in Australia, but know that the pantry and the fridge have been stacked by the butler and that you've got fresh flowers in the place because that's not going to be there necessarily in your home. Yeah. So I think that's a big attraction piece. Yeah, and look, you know, we talk a lot to our, our buyers and they are looking to downsize, but a lot of the time they're not willing to compromise on the actual internal floor space. So, you know, they're still looking at a three or four, even a five bedroom apartment, but they don't have those 
six extra people they have to pay for to do the gardens, the, the, the pool, the, the tennis court maintenance. Um, so that's that's certainly appealing. So I think that's something that in the future we're going to see a lot more, um, you, know, you know, an attraction towards that high rise um, mentality. Um, and like I said, it, it is replicating that hotel experience. Um, but certainly the, these apartments that are at the luxury end, they're, they're not the same size that we're used to going into a normal project. They're, they're you know, they're ridiculously big. Yeah. Um, so even when you start to talk about, you know, rates per square metre and so forth, they're, they're off the chart. Yeah. Um, and that's something that, you know, we're going to see a lot more of that uh, right. in the future. I, I, having been through the display suite for one Barangaroo, I understand the proportions you're talking about. So the shower area, the area where you get changed, these are all large rooms. Um, and I've finally, it's finally twigged for me that uh, we've been building a lot of ones, twos and three bedroom apartments. And that somebody that really wanted to get a penthouse that wanted a decent sized apartment was usually forced to have to buy two properties uh, that gave them the space they wanted, but they, they clearly didn't need six bedrooms. Mm. They didn't need, five bedrooms and they didn't need two kitchens. What they wanted was a, a grand, simple three bedroom apartment, but we just didn't know that. Mm. We kept building the same old thing that was just a little bit bigger than a two bedroom apartment. And I think that's something that, um, you know, we've certainly learned as an industry um, that we, we were sort of missing that point. Um, and it's true, like if you wanted to have that, you needed to wait for an apartment um, project to be built and you would just be um, looking at the, you know, the top two or three levels um, yeah. And that was the only option. So, you know, we've now got, um, you know, that, that option of having the whole building being of super prime quality. Um, and that's, you know, now being rolled out around around the country. Um, so, yeah, that's something that, you know, going forward, we, we, we will see more high rise um, required um, to, to meet those demands. Yeah. The other point um, I wanted to raise too was just on amenity. I noticed uh, overseas that security, pure security and exclusivity uh, were the drivers five years ago. Uh, not, not saying that security is anything less than what it was and you've said that it still is highly important and we know terrorism is an issue. But uh, it seems to me that some of these mixed developments uh, where they offer that amenity for you uh, at a lower level in the building uh, they're even more sought after. So if you can go down and you can go down to your private gym or you can use a gym that's being used by the public or you can go down to your, your restaurant breakfast area, uh, which is private, uh, or you can go down to a series of restaurants, that's got more appeal to it. I guess people are saying, look, I, I want to socialise. I don't really want to spend all my time with the same people in the same block. Mm. So having that little bit of a, a be able to taste uh, the participation in a community and um, socialise is really important. Mm. And look, you know, I guess um, our business leaders are more accessible than ever with social media. Um, so that's something that, you know, having that authenticity is, is super important for businesses these days. But on the flip side of that, you know, there, there's still that, um, you know, there's that level of security and protection that they're after. Yeah. And, and these, these buildings need to be, um, you know, kitted out to, to be able to uh, accommodate that. Yeah, great. Um, I think we'll, we'll have a look at really what $1 million uh, yes. buys you. This, this is, is US $1 million. Yeah, this is some of our very popular research that we get asked on a, on a quarterly basis. So if we were to have a $1 million check US, how much it would buy you around the, the globe? And this is actually internal prestige space. Right. So when, you can't really compare that to the mainstream market, um, but this is your prime top notch. Um, so looking at Sydney, it, 
can buy 52 square metres. Right. If you were to compare that with the top of the list is Monaco with 16 square metres with that $1 million. So what does 16 square metres get you? That's that's not even <laughs> student accommodation, is it? Yeah. So, um, you know, that was, so when you look at us, you know, we're relatively um, affordable. We're in that prestige space around the world. Um, you know, and then I guess going down to Melbourne, you get almost double your 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 space for that for that check. Right. Um, and uh, it, it's it's amazing where you know it's definitely that two um, speed market where on the, the the mainstream market we are um, you know less affordable when you compare to other cities around the world. Yep. Um, but in this prestige space, there's certainly that opportunity. Um, and you know the ultra wealthy are, are seeing that and, yeah. and are looking to invest in in Sydney. So Monaco is the number one, but that's a fairly small area. Uh, if we were look at New York or London, where where about? Yeah, so uh, Hong Kong is um, the next one on the list, and right. then London and Hong Kong, uh, sorry, London and New York are always sort of tossing. Right. Um, and it, a lot of it's just got to do with the currency each each quarter, because um, obviously currency takes into account, yeah. and that's something that you know at the moment we are relatively um, attractive just from a, a currency play for a lot of these people that are looking yeah. to buy from offshore. Yeah, I guess it shows you also the that apartments may be relatively new to Australia, but they're not overseas. Oh, definitely not. So we've got buyers, particularly Asian buyers, that are used to growing up in an apartment. Mm. So for them to come here and buy an apartment when we're all thirsty to buy blocks of land with homes on them, uh, that's uh, unusual, isn't it? Yeah. So it's, a, it's really a, a trend. We'll see more and more units in the future, won't yeah. we? And that's what's quite interesting about the residential space is that it's, it's emotional and it's, you know, it, it comes down to what the individual needs and wants. Yeah. Um, so that's something that um, I guess, yeah, certainly in the future, we will see more of these um, high rises to accommodate those types of buyers. I guess too for the worker, the workers being more demanding about the distance of travel between where they live and their, um, and their environment they, they're going to work in. We're seeing more working from home, of course, but the trend is globally is very much coming towards the city, isn't it, where the jobs are? Yeah. So that pretty much wraps up our conversation. Um, thank you, Michelle. I think this, this is information that like hardly anybody gets an opportunity to listen to and it's really fascinating and it's great to see that we're important mm. in global terms too, relevant, certainly that Sydney and Melbourne are up there as global cities. So I think what we'll do now is we'll hand across to our audience and see if they've got any questions that they'd like to ask Michelle or me about the topic. We do, we do have a um, couple of questions here. Um, so we've got a question from Noble. So is ultra wealth in a few hands, is it good for Australia in the long run? Wouldn't a good spread of wealth across the landscape be far better for growth? Yeah, so you want to take that? Yeah, look, uh, um, I guess the, the way to look at that is that when you uh, look at that ultra wealthy population, they are, you know, do tend to invest into our, our cities. Um, you know, there could be a flow on effect to the retail space. If we're looking at, you know, luxury buyers, um, also wanting luxury brands, um, so that obviously you know stimulates the economy in that space. Did you? Yeah. No, I look. I was just going to say to you. I, I think that the what I first spoke about, which was the average adult wealth, um, it just it really shows that Australia is quite fortunate in that the people with the least amount of money still have money. Mm. Whereas we find with these other countries, many of the other countries out there, there's a huge gap between the poor and the wealthy. So we're, Australians are kind of tightly knitted in that middle ground area in the main. And that's why we're, we're up there as the second wealthiest adults on average. Yeah. We have been quite fortunate that we do have those super funds to, to support our, our, our working population. Yeah. 
Good question, but I think yeah. we're actually doing quite well in comparison to other countries. Mm. Um, we have another one. So, are there any demographics of these ultra wealthy in Australia in terms of their source of wealth and makeup of Australians? So, example, old money or new migrant money influx. Yeah, good question. Yeah, look, it's um, it's quite difficult to to work out the the old money and new money because obviously, if you know. It's not that we've all got open books and we can see into how people have obtained their funds. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, where people have made their, their money, I guess, um, you know, as I was saying before, you know, there, there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are coming through, which we haven't seen so much in the past. That technology space and the media um, environment is, is certainly building up a lot of wealth and they're very young as well compared to what we've seen in the past. Um, but I mean, did you? Yeah, look, we did a little bit of profiling on one Barangaroo and we've got a few sales in there, uh, that development there of over $40 million, which is a lot for an apartment. And when we look at the kind of buyer that's buying, strangely enough, high percentage of Australians, uh, the age range 50s and 60s, and uh, when we look at um, where they probably made their money, and I think you're right, we don't truth, truthfully know exactly, but property and finance were the two areas that seem to be coming through quite strongly. Mm. I, I found that fascinating for property people who normally, again, love land to be buying an apartment, but I, I think that just shows that we're looking at um, some truly global designs mm. and a different style of uh, life. And I think it's what people are going to be pursuing in the future. Yeah, there's also a strong correlation between the stock market and the, the prestige um, property space. So if you were to chart up, you know, how the, the stock market has performed locally compared to the, the prime property prices, um, there, there's quite a strong correlation there as well. So. Um, you know, I guess it yeah. all feeds into each other. Yeah, good point. So one last question. So <clears throat> I saw a hundred million sale last year. So was this a one-off? The hundred million dollar sale? Yeah. Look, I think that um, that's probably the first of, of a few more to come over the coming years. We may not see one this year. Um, you know, they're not um, popping up on every corner. Um, but certainly, um, you know, the, the, the wealth, um, I, sorry, the, the price growth of these um, homes in terms of their values have certainly gone up. So there are others that are around that um, $100 million mark, possibly more. If they were to come to market, I guess that we probably would see that. But I guess something that's quite um, an interesting study that we did um, last year was that we saw uh, there were five sales over 25 million US that occurred in that year. Um, and that didn't include any off-the-plan type sales. So as Kimball alluded to, that we know that at, at Wambarangaroo that they have got four sales over 40 million. Then you know that's something that um, is quite um, you know groundbreaking for our industry. Um, but in saying that, I guess what I would be drawing the attention to is that in the coming years we probably won't just see it in a, a standalone house on the eastern in the eastern suburbs. It could actually be in an apartment which we're seeing around the world right now. I think there's certainly space um, to see, you know, a, a, an apartment that goes for that much. So just on that, um, it, it comes down to rarity. Mm -hmm. I think we're, we're realising there that if something's rare and people have the money to be able to buy it they, and they can afford it, they will buy it. So if it's rare, that's something that's quite special. There's an apartment in New York on Central Park South that sold. It's the top two floors of a building that's been built by, in fact, Australia's Lend-Lease. And that sold for 250 million US. That's about 333 million for an apartment that looks over a park. So um, yeah, 100 million for Australia on the waterfront. 
it's probably looking a little cheap now. Yeah, especially when we see premiums on the waterfront of up to you know 90%, just purely being on the on the waterfront. So to yeah. be on Sydney Harbour, which is unrivaled yeah. <laughs> around the world, especially you know it? it's it's very likely we will see that in the coming years. Yeah, so rarity is important. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. That's it. Alrighty, well that's it. Thank you, Kimball. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Um, and thank you, everyone. Oh, we've got good feedback coming through. Excellent. So thank you very much, everybody. Great retention rate. We've gone a little bit over time, but it's worked out really well. Um, and thank you very much, for everyone, for joining us today. Thank Bye. you for having us. Bye. Thank you.